Hi, everyone. Please be gentle. Um, I've not smiled in church so much for so long. It was so good to hear. Thank you, Mark, and Obi, the music, and Roddy, who I only asked to read probably 10 minutes before we started. So that was read so beautifully. Um, but before I get into a topic, which I can see people are already shifting to the edges of their seats, checking for the exits, um, let's pray. Father God, Mother God, God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather here today. We thank you that you have brought us from all the corners of the earth, that we are all made in your image, and that image is love. Um, we pray that these words will transform us, transform me as I speak them, and everyone here as they hear them. Um, help us in this work that we are doing together as a community. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to have to coordinate with the guys at the back, um, but I think we're good for this one for a minute. Um, so anyone who doesn't know me, um, my name's Eliza. Um, I have been a member of this community for longer than I can remember. <laughs> um, seven years, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but as I've started to do more recently, I often start by introducing myself as an immigrant. It never really mattered when I came here, but now it seems deeply pertinent to be able to say I am an immigrant. Um, my family's from Cameroon. I grew up all over sub-Saharan Africa, and I moved to the UK to come to uni. Um, I have always identified as Christian, um, uh, even though I really struggled with it at times and uh, often preferred, I explored other things. Um, I am a writer, I used to be an editor at The Guardian, and I'm a founder of a platform focusing on African women's stories called The Nzinga Effect. My thing that pays the bills is I work for the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and yeah, I am... A person on a journey of trying to understand community. So uh, when I was asked to do this by Flick, my initial reaction was to say no. I was like, it's October, of course you want a black person to speak about Black History Month. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, thanks, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, and I was hesitant. I think um, Steve like, went on the assault to try and convince me to do it. Um, uh, and I was still really hesitant because I think we have, we're doing a lot of work as a community. We're very bold in thinking about what inclusion means um, and who stands up here and talks about it really matters. And, um, and we have a very diverse approach to talking about LGBT, but I only feel that I'm standing here talking about race. So um, it was only probably a month before today when I was sat somewhere over here um, hearing somebody else talk and reminding myself that as part of a community, I am on a journey with the people here. Um, and so to, abs to abdicate from my responsibility to play my part in that is not community. Um, so. I am uncomfortable, um, and if it makes you uncomfortable, we are in the same boat. <laughs> um, okay, so can you change the slide, please? I am going in the wrong direction with mine. Uh, I'm 
just following on here so that I can keep track. Okay. Um, I'm going to start by telling you a story about Black Panther. So <laughs> on Valentine's Day this year, I went with my stepson, Julian, who would otherwise have been here today, but um, is with his granddad, uh, and my friend Stephen and his son, Tao, to go see Blockbuster, the Blockbuster movie, Black Panther. How many people saw Black Panther? It's not, can we just find the people who haven't seen it and just say? <laughs> um, and it was, a, obviously, as you now know, it's a story set in a fictitious East African country called Wakanda, follows the adventures of its leader, T'Challa, um, who is also the Black Panther. And I'd written an article for The Guardian explaining why Black Panther was so highly anticipated. And I wrote in it, Wakanda has never been colonized. Um, as, we, as well as being a superhero, Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman, the actor, is a religious figurehead and a political leader whose strength comes from his intellect, the superior technology in his suit, and a herb that only he can eat without being poisoned, as well as knowledge of his ancestors. It's Afrofuturistic gold. His 16-year-old sister, Shuri, is the smartest person in the world, and he is guarded by an elite force who, according to Tanahesi Coates' reboot of the story um, in a comic book, um, as well as these women, uh, the Dora Milaji, are more equal than subservient. So it's not just black and proud, it's also feminist. Um, and I thought, given the moment that we were in, that's why there was a lot of anticipation for it. And on the day I went to see it, I took this picture of myself and posted it on my Instagram. Uh, and maybe, oh, the caption is quite big. Uh, the caption says, to be black in a white world and African in the West is to constantly be aware of how much space you take up, to, to diminish yourself, the curve of your hips that spill onto other seats, your pungent food, your unruly hair, your loud voice, your many children, your raucous church services that interrupt the peace of the nearby yoga studio. That line came from a newspaper article in Peckham where someone wrote in to say how um, they, were, they had moved to Peckham and opened a yoga studio and the Sunday mornings were the worst time to have a class because the Africans were screaming next door. Um, and your, stu your stuttering pleas to be seen, heard, and counted. You're always too much, but never enough for love, for that promotion, for the mention in history books, for a seat at the table. Then, for two hours and 15 minutes, Black Panther transports you to a different reality, one where you exist without excuse or apology, and it is good. And Black Panther is obviously just a film. It is a fictionalized account, but anyone who's had any kind of conversation with me, sorry, small group, um, know that I think often about power and how people exist in space and what space we take up and how I've often described myself as uh, a, my Christianity as a bit like David um, wearing Saul's armor. It's for my own protection, but it's just the wrong size. It doesn't feel quite right. Um, because I come from a space where there was culture and religion and identity and power and, and all of those things were nullified to be able to, for the colonial project to happen. And so um, I have often thought that while I identify with Jesus, um, I have often not identified with the structure that comes with it, the Christian structure, because it doesn't look very much like me, doesn't sound like me, doesn't reference me very often. Um, in fact, to be both black and a woman means that I am often very invisible, um, and saying that as a person with extraordinary privilege. So when I was 
thinking about uh, how to talk about this without just repeating those points, um, I was thinking that obviously Black Panther is a story of empowerment of black people. Um, it is an opportunity to live in fiction, which we rarely do in sci-fi. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this. The future is just white. Um, inshallah. Um, in full color and in full view. It's also, as my friend Sebabato Manoeli um, pointed out when she addressed a mainly white liberal congregation in Cape Town, not too dissimilar from Oasis actually, um, that Black Panther is as much about whiteness as it is about blackness. For 500 years or so, white people have been at the center of the narrative. In this film, they have to reimagine themselves as just part of the story. Um, and to eliminate, to illustrate that, we're gonna watch a first video um, and in the video clip, a character called Everett Ross, if you've watched the film, you would know him, played by Martin Freeman. He is a CIA agent. Um, he thinks Wakanda is just this sort of like, you know, land of shepherds and farmers and probably a view not too dissimilar from the one that people hold here. In fact, I remember being 14 and going on a school trip from my school in Kenya to France and the Italian kids on the trip were really surprised we knew how to cross the road. Um, and for the longest time, actually, my brother at university got lots of dates, perhaps lots of sex too, from suggesting that his scars were acquired from fighting animals in Africa. Um, this is probably still a line. I don't know. I'll have to ask um, my partner's little brother who's at uni whether or not that line still works. But just this idea of Africa as a place of death, destruction, and disease um, is a view that Everett Ross holds. And so when he wakes up in Wakanda, um, he's surprised by what he finds. Thank you. We don't have to watch it to the end. Um, it was just to illustrate what happens there and uh, lots of film nerds but also the dozens of people after uh, Black Panther came out who were writing all kinds of analysis about the film um, have often referred to Ross as a sort of magical Negro. So he was the inverse version of the magical Negro who is a, a, a Hollywood trope, essentially a black character that exists in the storyline solely for the purpose of facilitating the well-being and the character plus advancements of the most white characters who are the lead characters. And so there's a sort of subtle inversion in this story where the white CIA agent's role is just simply to facilitate the advancement of the plot for the more important characters. And thinking about that, um, what makes it remarkable for me was what my friend um, Sabi said which was that when we were, if we're talking about inclusion and race, we often focus on the marginalized. Um, and today I wanted us to talk about the communities of power, so whiteness as a structure. Um, I know that makes uh, Caucasian people very uncomfortable, um, but can I just say that we're not talking about whiteness as a sort of uh, as a melanin count, <laughs> we're talking about systems and structures built on the idea that because I have more melanin than you, we are different. Um, and that is the system on which our entire societies have been built. 
And to, in order to be able to include, we have to confront the system. And so we have to talk about whiteness. So though I guess the initial premise of me speaking was to talk about race, perhaps it was, you know, how it would be nicer to see, sing more songs, more Negro spirituals, or to see more black people at the front, or um, I don't know, to have more Ghana days. Um, but actually, I would like us to talk about whiteness as a structure and how, as Christians, we have a role to play um, in challenging those structures. Uh, the reason I chose the reading for today is because there is an idea that there was a crowd that didn't see or didn't acknowledge the blind man. And the blind man calls out to Jesus, and there is an opportunity for Jesus to come over. Um, and it struck me as interesting as I was researching and reading other people's perspectives, why didn't Jesus go over to Bartimaeus? Um, why does he say, call him? And maybe in many ways it was to achieve what happened with Everett Ross in that clip for him or for they to see what they haven't previously seen. Um, the crowd clearly hadn't seen him. And maybe Jesus, I don't know, was trying to get their attention to pivot from what they were in their safe space and their numbers to the one marginalized person in that number to say, oh, Jesus sees you, so I guess now we have to too. Um, and this is the reason I want to talk about whiteness. It's what we have not previously seen. Can we see and acknowledge? It's really going to annoy me that my, my laptop has a password. Um, let's see. Um, can you change the slide, please? The other reason is um, I've said about my own personal sort of discomforts identifying as Christian and thinking about race in that context. And I actually, it dawned on me that actually I'm okay <laughs> because the religion or the, the story of Jesus is one born out of a marginalized context anyway. The Jewish people were not the majority in the land they were living in. They were oppressed. Um, and from this image from 2015, which is meant to be the sort of scientific um, recreation of what Jesus might actually look like, he definitely looked more like me than like you. Um, and so actually, if we were able to just go by the, by the sort of historical fact, I should be able to see myself in the story. Um, and the reason I don't is because somewhere along the line, Jesus ended up looking like this. Actually, in this image, his eyes aren't quite blue enough. Um, and this is part of the sort of package of the storytelling that then becomes our religious fabric that then gets exported around the world. And so um, thinking about this work is what I wanted us to do. And um, one of the things I read from a student in theological college is this. I'll just read it out to you. Um, he also reflects on the same scripture that we read and on this idea of whiteness. He says... We cannot know what it's like to be cast aside by society. We cannot know what it's like to be foreigners in a strange land. We cannot know what it's like to be in clear view of society and to be forced into silence. Historically, we have never been blind Bartimaeus. We have been the crowd. We shut down a way of life in 1619, so obviously he's talking about the American perspective, when we took people from their homes and brought them to America. We refused equality when we signed a Declaration of Independence that didn't include people of color. We failed logically when we wrote history books celebrating the Revolutionary War with, while also condemning John Brown and Nate Turner. 
We gave up fairness when we allowed Andrew Jackson to commit genocide by forcibly removing native people from their homes. We gave up fairness again in 1890 by opening up fraction of the fraction of the fraction of land to native peoples. We defrauded our alleged fairness with the Chinese Exclusion Act and Japanese internment camps during World War II. We gave away our facade of progress by actively trying to undermine the ministry and political involvement of Martin Luther King Jr. We didn't make good on our promises when we fled urban centers to create inner cities without resources or avenues for success. And we continue to show our attempts at silencing people of color by treating opioid dependency as a disease but crack as a crime. Supporting presidents who equate Mexican-Americans with rapists and inner city zones and inner cities as war zones and refusing to recognize racial profiling as a serious issue within law enforcement. And then he writes in capital letters, as a people, as a people group, we have always been the crowd, we have always been the silencers, we have never been Bartimaeus. And while we only read white theologians and learn from white teachers, we are perpetuating the silencing history that begs us to, that history begs us to pay attention to. We are theolog um, theological actors in blackface, masquerading as understanding disenfranchisement. I'm sure that wasn't pronounced right. Um, while, when all we have known is privilege. Um, I don't know as a person who has, I'm sure we all experience some sort of different disenfranchisement in some way we have a system of layers of oppression and marginalization. There is class, race, gender, sexuality, ability, ableism, weight. Um, but it really struck me as true in our church um, as a community that we talk often about inclusion while we don't often acknowledge our privilege. So let's go from the US to the UK because too often this conversation is focused on America and we then feel like there's nothing happening here and it's like we're cushy and it's all fine. Um, let's see what the UK history looks like if we move to the next slide. Hopefully it's the right one. Ah, before we do that, so um, <laughs> a little sort of sense of what a rebuttal might be. Um, I don't know if anyone here has said it. I have definitely heard it. I do not see race um, uh, by very lovely, well-meaning people um, who are like, just move past the issue of race. Just get over it. Um, doesn't matter. Race is a construct, which is what I'm saying. But let's talk about why we have to talk about it. There are people, so this is uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, uh, an academic who says, there are people who consider themselves left progressive, very critical, who have convinced themselves that the only way to get beyond race is to stop talking about race. By taking this stance, they align themselves with the post-racial liberals and self-styled colorblind conservatives. And so it's basically she's saying that refusing to see race isn't progressive, it's further silencing. Because if I say to you that I've had an experience because of the color of my skin and because of my gender, and you're like, oh rubbish, I'm sure they didn't mean it that way, you further silence me. So if we move to the next slide, please. So there's a tendency in society, um, Dan, you will kind of hint when I've gone on for too long. Um, I'm trying to go slowly, gently. Uh, but there's a tendency in society to focus on interpersonal racism, 
which is mostly visible in the words that people say, right? Don't use the N-word, don't say this, don't say that. We really police that area. Um, but I would like to argue that actually, in terms of what's really important, while it is important to think about what we say, that words are powerful, um, that other things are far more important. And when we are talking about privilege, and the reason I'm, I framed my talk about as a talk about whiteness, is because of the way systemic racism and institutional racism allows good, well-meaning people to continue to um, live in a society where they do not challenge why some people are at the bottom and others at the top. It's not that anyone has any overt desire to exclude, but that actually um, there are structures that were built a long time ago that we continue to be able to take advantage of. And those structures, if we do not acknowledge them, we have a discourse that moves in a way that we have seen it move where we now talk about migrants as swarms. Um, and I want to read to you um, a, a, a quote, well, an article written by a British mainstream commentator. And we might say, yes, he's conservative in his views, but actually this is the view in the mainstream press in the UK. We are now in the tyranny of now, uh, it's Rod Little, if anybody wants to know. We must give credit where credit is due. Um, a time when the liberals in Hollywood or at the BBC or our university campuses will rewrite or eradicate history according to their own manifestos and where everything that has happened in the past is subject to a Manichaean divide, which is a divide of black and white, which I didn't know before. Um, in a film about slavery, the black people will be uniquely good and the white people uniquely bad, conveniently avoiding the issue that black Africans instigated the slave trade um, and continued it long after we were pricked by our honky consciences. Attempts to suggest that not everything that came from colonialism was uniformly bad, as an Oxford professor did recently, and you will find yourself subjected to a moronic inferno of howled abuse, even though palpably it's not quite as black and white as that. The tyranny of now with its weird non-sequentials, that's a lot of big words, is perfectly okay for a man to identify as a woman, but once his breasts have been stapled on, don't for God's sake allow him to wear a kimono because that is cultural appropriation. It is cultural appropriation for our supermarkets to sell curries, but, cultural but it is not cultural appropriation for Chinese restaurants to sell pie and chips. Um, I really could go on, but I think I've subjected you to enough. Um, and this is the mainstream narrative in this country. It is why after um, the Brexit vote, the population that has experienced the highest amount of violence has been um, hijabi women. Um, because our mainstream narrative about what is happening in this country is individualized and we are policing language rather than looking at structures. It's why we talk about inner cities in a specific way. When we talk about our knife crime, um, the, uh, the systemic issue there, we look at young people and we think that the problem here is the music they listen to and not the systems that affect their lives. So reflecting on this then, um, uh, Tim, who read the reading to us, if you can move to the next slide, please. Uh, I put up a definition because I always find it helpful. <laughs> Institutional racism is the collective failure of, our organi of an organization to provide 
an appropriate and professional service to people because of their color, culture, or ethnic origin. It can be seen or detected in, in processes, attitudes, and behaviors amongst which amount to discrimination though unwitting, through unwitting prejudice, ignorance, thoughtlessness, and racist stereotyping that disadvantage minority ethnic people. And the next one after that, please. Um, this is from last year. Just I found some examples that illustrate the sort of the context in which we are currently living. Ethnic minorities are underrepresented at senior levels across the public sector. Black Caribbean students were permanently excluded at three times the rate of white British students. The unemployment rate for black, Asian, and minority ethnics is double that of white British adults. White people, Indians, and Pakistanis are likely to own their own homes, but Bangladeshis, blacks, and uh, a disproportionate... Um, underrepresented, that's not what that says, but you can read. Um, Pakistani pupils continue to fall behind in secondary school. Gypsy, Roman, traveler kids are the worst um, uh, affected. Um, and then I put by contrast in the sense that 85, 84, and oh, I cut out the number, it was 81% of black people feel they belong to the UK. So this argument of the need to integrate um, is not legitimate because actually... 85, 84, 81, very close numbers of people of all ethnicities who live here feel they belong, and yet they're disproportionately underrepresented in other ways. And I also kept in the stats that aren't necessarily about black people because we have to take an intersectional view. I'm not just interested in my empowerment, I'm interested in the empowerment of all groups because you know none of us are free until we are all free. So, next slide please. Okay, um, so I was chatting to home group in, um, about this, talking on this subject, and Tim very rightly said, well, what can you do? Um, and what can be done? And so I thought about what can be done as four things. First of all, I think when we are talking about whiteness, when we're talking about it in our church or in our society, we have to acknowledge that there is so much work to do. And we have to acknowledge that it has taken too long. And we have to move from being sort of vaguely uncomfortable about that to being really frigging angry about it. Because the system we have had has been in place for too long. We often think of it as, oh, since the wind rush, the arrival of migrants then. But that image is of a black Tudor painted in the 1500s. Um, so um, we have had people of all ethnicities coming through these aisles for a very long time. To assume that the work we have done is good enough progress because they only started to arrive in the 60s and because we no longer have signs that say no blacks, no dogs, no Irish, is to allow ourselves to do less than the work that we have to do. And then it's to learn. Um, because it's one thing to think that we know, but then not to seek out the stories and lives of other people who are living different experiences. It is the reason why I asked Roddy to read the um, poem he read, because I am not a queer woman, but I think that someone needs to hold a space for queer women's voices, like for Roma voices, like for um, you know working class voices. And so that was about holding a space for stories that are not represented. Um, learn and then teach your communities. Um, 
every time I ask a question at a public forum or I'm chairing something about race, um, every time The Guardian asks me to write, not every time, but a lot of the times, is to write and to talk about things that I identify with, my identity, right? Talk about Cameroon, Eliza, talk about Africa, talk about being a black woman. Um, it's not to be able to talk to other things. And so actually, the majority of people have become accustomed to hearing minority people talking just about their experiences. Um, and so there are spaces that we cannot get into, spaces where we are not heard. But this was part of the reason I was initially reluctant to stand here, because I thought a white heterosexual man talking about race and what they have learned and, how, and what they have had to unlearn um, and how they uh, operate differently and exist in space differently is probably more powerful to a white audience because they can see themselves reflected in that person. Of course I am angry, of course I am fed up, um, but to hear someone else say it. So if you learn, please take what you learn to your communities because there are spaces where my voice does not resonate. And then forgive. Um, it is why I still frankly come to this church because I desperately believe in community. I believe in the hard work of trying to figure it out together. Um, and so um, I'm not just saying forgive others, I'm saying forgive ourselves because it is tricky, uh, really difficult work of entangling and unlearning. Um, but it has to be done, so we have to be gracious with ourselves and with the communities that we belong to. Um, just before I finish, um, I think it's still worthwhile showing this last video because um, you may have already seen it, it was doing the rounds on social media, but I just think it is a really, really important way of visualizing the challenge that we have ahead. Had people seen that before? Probably, yeah, lots of. Um, I just think it's a really important reminder um, that our, we were talking a few weeks ago about money and it was really moving and important to remember um, the structural reasons um, that we have the economic system we have. But it's also important to remember that that economic system, though we talk about it in vague terms, is built on people. And that those first people um, are people who look like me um, on the backs of black and mi minority ethnic people. And so as we are complicit in it, that is not to make us feel guilty. It's just to acknowledge the privilege we have so that we can take action. I was reading something just to conclude from a book called Black Theology in Britain, a reader. And the concept in there is about black theology, but I think it really um, applies to us here too. Um, so it says, Christian faith must be based upon the notion of reflective action and active reflection, whilst an active participation in social events is of immense importance, there must be the realization that simply responding to events without analysis to the underlying structures and systemic fault lines that lead to particular forms of social inequalities is insufficient if the Christian faith is to proclaim the radical intent of the economy of God. Um, they were talking there, of course, about black theology towards um, being, having a vision of being towards empowerment and transformation. But if there's anything I've known about Oasis, if there's anything I know about the people in this community, um, and the reason why I identify with this community and work with this community, is because we have that same vision of empowerment and transformation. And so we really have to take up the mantle to be people who are, um, 
uh, who reflect, who have, who practice reflective action, but are also active in their reflection. Um, may these words challenge you, encourage you, uh, give you a sense of discomfort, but only the kind that leads us to see who are the blind Bartimaeuses among us sitting on the sidelines and to call them in um, because seeing them and thinking that they will move forward towards Jesus clearly didn't work then and it's certainly not working now. Anything less than that is laudable but not enough. Thank you.